Today we'll finish up our last message in our Transformed Home series. It's our hope that you have been inspired to build the home that God has freed you to build and um, live in the freedom that God has provided for us. And we have a vision here that when the gospel's at work, the good news, the main message of the Christian faith is not good behavior. It isn't behave like Jesus. It, the main message of the gospel is something, the main message of the Christian faith is the good news of the gospel that because of how Jesus lived, we can believe and be rescued from our own sin, separation from God. That we, in fact, um, aren't in good, right standing with God based on our work and our effort, but we're in right standing with God based on His work and His effort through Jesus. And then we live our lives to believe it. So we have this vision that the gospel changes hearts. And we'll we'll see that expressed at the Teen Challenge graduation. It's our vision also that the gospel transforms our home. That it translates into affecting our relationships, our parent-child relationships, our child-parent relationships, our sibling relationships, and beyond. And uh, in fact, you've heard me offer to you the last few weeks three main ideas. So if you miss the last three weeks, I'm going to give you a a real quick summary here and you'll get to see what we talked about, that the gospel transformed home is designed to train children to submit to authority. That's the building block of eventually submitting to the lordship or or the sovereign authority of God, the creator. Also, gospel transformed home is intentionally rooting out legalism is in the process, in an ongoing way of rooting out all the legalism that comes along with um, um, humanity. And then secondly, uh, or thirdly, gospel-transformed home is refocusing from correcting behavior to concentrating on the heart. The gospel gives us freedom not just to say, hey, I demand that your behavior be corrected, but we get to concentrate on what's motivating those and allowing the gospel to bring freedom and joy in those areas so that we don't um, see the... Uh, just the bad fruit of, of what's going on in our heart. So today, we're going to jump over to our last big idea. If you don't embrace grace, right? First, let me, let me back up. This is a lot. And some of us are like, you know what? I was uh, um, hoping to be inspired by a transformed home, but this is a lot that I learned that I'm not doing. <laughs> this is a lot to take in and all of a sudden just start doing all these new gospel transformed home, home type of things. And so, our big idea today is this, is this, if you don't embrace grace, then trying to be a good parent and trying to be a good family will crush you. It will crush you. If you don't embrace grace, those other three things in a gospel transformed will begin to weigh on you and will begin to crush you. And we're going to look at today, where do we find the power to be free from that crushing weight of perfection? Um, so, I, um, I think this will be helpful. I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be um, inspiring and in some ways set some people free. Uh, we know that the biggest obstacle to a good home, a loving family, we know that the biggest obstacle is our own hearts, our own flaws and failures. Um, the, only op- the biggest obstacle to having good discipline in the home is our own self-absorbed lives and our own self-absorbed choices. Ultimately, 
ultimately, and this is good news, ultimately only God can be trusted to reach and to change and to heal, to rescue, and to grow our kids and family even when we fail. Only God can be trusted to do that. Here's two symbolic comments that I want to run by you. And if you can imagine these comments appearing on a Christian parenting website, there are such things. Christian parenting website. Here's comment number one. And this is coming to us from Boast a Lot. Boast a Lot posted on this website it's great to be a Christian parent. I thank God for my children and that their parents are not like others, immoral and selfish and lazy. We have such a great time when we start the day with family devotions. We never miss a day. Even when we're on a road trip or at a hotel, our home is a haven of purity. And we do so much for missions. Our children know the names of every missionary we support. We alternate learning their names with learning chapters of Romans at bedtime. Must dip. Thank you, Lord. That came from Boast a Lot. So there's another comment just below this comment on the Christian parenting website. And the comment underneath this comment is from someone named Connie Trite. Connie Trite says, Lord, I feel useless. Please have mercy on my kids because with a parent like me, they sure need it. (laughs) So, I mean, for those of you who can't relate to this because you don't have kids, you can't feel the feels of both of those types of approaches when you're parenting your family, um, the same type of comparison is described by Jesus. He doesn't use boast a lot and Connie trite. He uses two different types of people. But he brings this contrast that is important for us to see, and it's important for us to let the contrast, the weight of it, come to bear on our hearts. Because it'll save you. It'll save you heartache and guilt and withdrawing and brokenness. And here's this comparison that Jesus draws. Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other one was a despised tax collector. Now Jesus is on purpose selecting these two categories of people. And a lot of us who have learned this story or come from a church background, we understand what's happening here. But when Jesus says there's a Pharisee, what he's saying is there's a religious teacher of the law who on the outside have um, held their lives together fairly well by all appearances. They are considered rulers and teachers and overseers who have mastered the religion of Judaism. And then... Um, He makes a contrast here saying, and then there's a tax collector. What kind of tax collector is this? Help me out here. A despised one. Um, By the way, this isn't a specific tax collector who's despised. All tax collectors are despised. This particular person is in the category of collecting taxes, betraying their own people by collecting money as a heavy burden tax from the Romans and on the Hebrew people. So they are Hebrew people collecting money for the Romans on behalf of Rome. 
and they're despised. So what Jesus is doing is saying, here's someone way up high that we respect, we submit to. We, we, obviously, they're masters and, and perfectors of their own religion. And then there's someone here at the bottom, the tax collector, who we despise. So there's imagery here, and there's powerful imagery here as Jesus draws this distinction. And here's the rest of the story. The Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. No doubt, out loud, so everybody can hear. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. So, I'm sorry, this makes me laugh. So, the Pharisee is praying, standing by himself, and the Scripture tells us that a lot of what they do is for outward appearances. So, I imagine he's praying out loud. And while he's praying, this low-life tax collector catches his eye. I want you to, can you imagine the kind of haughtiness that is talking to God and then some low-life tax collector catches their eye and then he thinks to mention it to God. Now God, in case you've missed it, I'm approaching you here praying as one who is justified and righteous before you, but in case you missed it, I'm not like this turd over here. In case you missed it. It blows my mind. It blows my mind. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. And I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance. Now, here's a different prayer. In contrast. Distinct. Very different. The tax collector, who, by the way, is getting no grace from anybody in the Hebrew culture, stands at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I know who I am, and I know where I stand, and I know what category I'm in. I'm a sinner. And Jesus tells this story, and he's telling this story to people who are like, What a loser that tax collector is. He ought to pray like that. It's good that he knows he's a sinner. Later on, we see Jesus twist the plot, and we see him in a little bit of a gotcha as he described this. Why does the Pharisee think that God's going to approve of him? Why does he think he's so impressive to God as God's looking down upon him? And it's because of his successes and his achievement, particularly in his own religion. He is flawlessly, or like the uh, elder brother in the prodigal son story, he is um, slavishly obedient, this Pharisee. Also, um, in his comparison, he's relatively better than someone else. That's why he thinks that God is impressed with him. He's relatively better than someone else. How does the tax collector approach God with contrition? Can't even make eye contact with the proverbial God in the sky. He himself doesn't dare lift his eyes up. He is beating his chest and he's doing so in sorrow. Calls himself a sinner. What does Jesus think about these two men? Well, only the repentant and the dependent tax collector, turns out, is commended by Jesus. And in fact we um, might answer another question. How might Jesus reply? 
If, if Jesus were reading the two comments on the parents' website, Christian parenting website, if Jesus were commenting or He was um, replying, He might say, Bo, Stalat, um, you're achieving, but you're no more accepted by me than Connie Trite. He might say, nothing you're accomplishing is getting credited to you as righteousness. No amount of flawless, perfect parenting is getting credited to you as righteousness before the Father in heaven. You're not winning in His eyes because of your achievement and your success. You don't have more favor. You don't have more blessings from me. I'm not giving them away for that reason. You may be impressed with yourself, but, Jesus may say, you're not impressing me with your successful parenting, and you're not depressing me with your bad parenting. So, how do we know that He'd say this? How do we know that it's likely that this is the kind of response Jesus would give? Check this out. Here's what Jesus goes on. In the rest of the story, I tell you, it is the tax collector, the despised tax collector, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exhausted. This response from Jesus gives us an essential lens to look through. And it's vital, critical, so important that we look at our homes through this lens. It's so vital that we recognize that this lens is the, is the lens that we use when you're looking at your own family, when you're looking at your own home, and when you're looking at your own mistakes. Vital that we are using this lens and seeing through this lens. This story urges us to look more closely. The story that Jesus is telling, these two categories of people, is, is urging us how important it is to look so closely at two very contrasting types of homes. Two contrasting homes. Now, we have high expectations in our country, in our homes, right? We love our kids. We even love our siblings' kids, our nieces and nephews. We love our kids' kids, the grandkids. We want so desperately to do what's best for them. So many sacrifices are made for our kids to make sure that they are able to advance and succeed and achieve. Oftentimes, we don't exactly know what's best for them. We want our children to get, to, uh, get a true picture of God. We want them to have a true picture of Christian living, of following Jesus. We certainly, and it's, how many of you are parents or grandparents? And one of the, uh, this is a bad question because this is an obvious answer. And if you don't raise your hand, it would be so embarrassing. Let me think of a way to ask this. I'm going to assume that if you belong to Jesus and you have kids and grandkids, one of the most desperate prayers you pray is, God, may they trust you, treasure you, follow you, submit to you, know you, be known by you. Right? That's it. Everything else, God, help it fall in place, but may they follow you and know you, treasure you more than everyone and everything. 
Um, you know, there's another prayer, too, that we could kind of comma add to that, which is, God, may, they, may you help them always and forever avoid being Pharisee, right? Not too bad that they're so rebellious and lost, but not so good that they're so impressed with themselves that they're also religiously lost. Neither one depending on the work of Jesus. We want, our pe- we want um, people who we love and respect. We want them to see our kids and respect our family. They want to, we want our kids to see what a profound difference that Jesus is, is making in our own lives, in our own homes. Certainly, we want to please God. But if we're honest, we're missing the mark. What we want is most likely not where we're at. And i got to tell you, one of the things that stresses me personally out the most is not what I do It's the difference between what I do and what I ought to do. It's not who I am. It's the difference between who I am and who I ought to be. And the weight of the difference between those two things is distressing to me. So when we're missing the mark, it can and does drag us down. And it, be, and, and it drags us down, oftentimes causing us or kind of compelling us to be one of these kinds of families, to be a guilt family. Um, high expectations, low results. And it's not surprising that if you have high expectations and low results, or high expectations and, and maybe not low results, but not quite that high results, that your home life, your family, has a fog of guilt in it. A fog of failure and fear. Especially parenting. And oftentimes the guilt that's attached to parenting. Am I making the right decisions? Am I doing the best? Am I, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Is this the best thing I can do? Right? Because some of us aren't just asking, is this um, the, the, what I'm supposed to do? Some of us are asking, is this the best I can do? Is this the best thing that they need? And when we get a moment to stop and think about it, we, we can feel, almost tangibly feel, how much we've let our kids down. And there's several reasons that we can feel this guilt. One is our character, right? Sometimes when it occurs to us how lazy we can be, Um, how grumpy we can be, how self-righteous we can be, our priorities all messed up, our loves disordered, and and, and sometimes that guilt is just surrounding our own character and lack of clear priorities. And if you have teens in the house, it's likely they're reminding you of your bad character on a regular basis, pointing it out. Very... Common. Also, other people's comments, right? Other people's comments who sometimes are trying to help you, but they're not helping. They're making it worse. I got a little bit of guilt. Other people make some comments on my parenting or on my family. Now I have a little bit more guilt. Not, not quite the effect that they're hoping, right? Little comments like, all you need to do is this. You're like, dummy, if it was that simple, I'd have done it. Didn't work. Or, or sometimes it's, um, we read this book, and after we read this book, I mean, it is so simple. Well, is it? I read the book. 
And it didn't work for my kids and my family. Sometimes it does. But because you told me to read the book and I read the book and it didn't work, guess what? I feel even more incompetent than I've ever felt in my life and more guilty. Um, Sometimes it's just a little comment, you know? You got the little ones running around sometimes, running around somewhere, and someone says, you got your hands full, don't you? Right? They're not saying that to the other family whose kids are marching in a straight line all the way through Target. Curse those kids and families. (laughs) I know what you're thinking. I know what you're thinking. I remember one time we were at a parade, church family, uh, parading together and families are walking and we're downtown and Raquel and I had just um, it was our first kid um, Kaylee, Kaylee's in a, in a stroller and we're, the families are walking alongside each other and we're parading downtown Syracuse scorching summer sun so hot so the sun bearing down on us, it's so sweaty and we're pushing the, the cart, uh, the cart <laughs> what is that called? Stroller, thank you. I mean, it's been 15 years since we had one of those. So um, we're pushing uh, our first child, Kaylee, who's a toddler. She's riding in this stroller. And one of the church ladies who was walking with us thought it would be helpful to mention that you're going to want to put sunscreen on her skin. And I'm, I respond to things that I don't like with sarcasm. So I was like, oh, on her skin. Right, right. Honey, I don't know why we put the sunscreen in her sippy cup, but it's going to have to go on her skin, evidently. That's what we're doing now. Because if you're going to insult me, then I'm going to low-key insult you, right? I honestly don't remember what I said, but I can assure you that her telling us we might want to put sunscreen on our toddler's skin didn't go over well. No kidding. No kidding. And um, I couldn't help but think, here's my interpretation. Oh, you know nothing, new parents. You don't know. You are, listen, because you're idiots, I'm going to help you out a little bit. I'm going to help you out a little bit. Now, now I say things like that to people, right? I don't, I don't, I don't mean to say that they don't know anything, but you're like, there's a lot to... There's a lot to keep track of with the kids. Maybe you forgot that your kid could be burned in, to the third degree in the summer sun, and you didn't remember, right? But it wasn't helpful. And also, sometimes comments that people make aren't that kind of benign. Some of them are painful, and they're hard to listen to. And sometimes they're comments about what they've got going. And you realize, I don't have that going. Why don't I have that going? Am I doing something wrong? Am I failing and flopping? Is my family a disaster? Am I leading my family into some kind of disaster? So other people's comments can make us feel so guilty. Then you get into comparing and competing, right? Sometimes we do this to soothe our guilt, to soothe our fear, to soothe our fear of failure. We're comparing ourselves. I did the same things they've done, but they never had any of these problems. I know that. I made the same mistakes, but their mistakes didn't seem to cost them the way it's costing us. Their family seems so happy. And then we mumble, so fake. <laughs> so fake. That can't be real. Tim Keller, one of my favorite authors, pastors, um, 
he's in the legacy stage of his life where he's writing legacy um, material. He says something I think that's helpful. This is just a little side, but he says the security and the deep fulfillment of Jesus' love, the security and the deep fulfillment of Jesus' love for you frees a Christian from the need to create identity by exclusion. In other words, we no longer need to rise up through putting other people down. Why? Because of the love and acceptance that Jesus has for us, we don't have to knock someone down so that we feel better about ourselves or so that we're noticed by God. Side note. Example, we don't have to ever say, God, I thank you, I'm not like the tax collector who's rotten to the core. We have to say that. We have to compare ourselves to other people and other families. But we do, and in comparing and competing, we can take on some guilt. Also, our self-condemnation along the way, right? I'm so terrible at this. God must be so disappointed. So much guilt there. So much guilt. Pastor Dan just preaches three messages and all three of the big ideas. I leave there and I think, you know what? I don't know why I even bother trying. It's so gotten away from me. It's so far gone. I'm falling so far behind. And, and just when you think you've got the hang of parenting toddlers, they morph into these teenagers. And you're like, a whole nother level of oopsie. I don't know about you, but there's been many times where I've thought, I hope it's not too late for a redo. I hope it's not too late for a redo. And I'm not just talking about parenting, right? I'm talking about grandparenting. I'm talking about in your own sibling relationships. I'm talking about in relating to your own parents. The need to just redo it, start over. And by the way, this is interesting. By the way, the definition of pride, this is important. The definition of pride is a hyper-focus on oneself. You know what that means? It means that you can have pride in some way that you're thinking too much of yourself. It could also mean that you're hyper-focused on yourself thinking too little of yourself. Do you know that? So pride happens positively and negatively where we're just hyper-focused on our successes or hyper-focused on our failures. And really, what pride is, is self-forgetfulness. It's thinking of yourself less. Not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. And humility actually comes through thinking of yourself less. But it's difficult when you're seeing um, some of the circumstances going on in our family. It's oftentimes we're caught in the crosshairs with so much guilt. So, this is important. What we do with that guilt tells us what we really believe about the gospel. What we do with that guilt, how we handle that guilt, tells us a lot about what we think of the good news that has regenerated our hearts and created a right relationship with God. What we believe about the gospel is revealed by what we do with that guilt. And it's an um, absolute... It's so ironic that trying to give the true picture of the Christian faith, God's amazing forgiveness... that at the same time that forgiveness can make us feel, uh, or I should say that the Christian faith could make us feel so guilty. It's more than ironic. It certainly can become a dangerous downward cycle. If we feel condemned, we don't communicate grace, 
making us feel even more condemned, right? We feel guilty. We don't communicate forgiveness. And ironically, here we are trying to represent, portray, and teach our own families what it looks like to be with Jesus, walk with Jesus, to be loved by God through Jesus. And then at the same time we're doing that, we don't ever talk about grace and forgiveness because we feel so condemned ourselves. I think that's ironic. The main message of the good news that gets interrupted because of our own sense of failure and guilt. If we want our families to be gospel-centered, then we must bring the gospel, the good news, to bear on our own failures and on our own guilt. If we can't bring our parenting and family sins to God, then we don't really have good news to celebrate. I mean, are, are we trying to communicate to our family, look, this is really good news. You can be forgiven by God unless you make the kinds of mistakes I make. And then you just don't, don't speak of it. Just carry the guilt around, the fog of guilt. So how can, we, how can we communicate the gospel to our family if we're not communicating it to our own hearts? How do we express to our kids, grandkids, our siblings and parents, and so on? How do we do that if we're not communicating it to our own hearts? Help me, God, deal with this guilt. There is help, and it's important for you to see that this help, and it's the transforming power of God's grace that frees us from guilt. He's made a way for us to fail into His arms. You've all heard the, 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 um, this kind of the romantic fantasy phase of fell into his arms. I, they, um, it was a fall into his arms kind of rescue. One of the essences, one of the pieces that is most glorious about the good news of the gospel is that we don't fail away from God in heaven. We fail into his arms. It's the direction that we go is right into his arms. Flawed parents, flawed brothers and sisters, You cannot miss this. The essence of the gospel is acceptance. And this is so vital. God accepts us because of what Jesus selflessly did, not because of what we have successfully done. And I want you to think about this in the lens of the condition of your family. Where your own kids and grandkids are at. The relationship that you currently have with your siblings and parents. This is so vital. The main message in the gospel, good news about who God is and what He's done, God accepts us. Why does He do that? Because of what Jesus selflessly did, not and never because of what we have successfully done. Well, this acceptance is true. How true is it? It's more true than you think. This is also true for his enemies. Do you know that before you come to Jesus, at some point or other, before you come to Jesus and you rest your trust in his work instead of your own, that you are a categorically, that you and I fall into the category of enemy of God. Did you know that? Separated from God. Some of us might think, well, no, I wasn't his enemy. I was kind of aloof and I was maybe ignorant or I was kind of doing my own thing. I didn't know any better. Well, that's your category. The Bible category for where we land is enemy of God. How does God express his grace to his enemies? Romans 5.10 helps us to see this. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his own son, while we were still his enemies... 
So, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So, what does this mean? This means that while we were still enemies, God pressed in with His grace. He pursued us with His forgiveness. And I think it's important for us to to, to recognize this. If He loved you when you were His enemy, then He'll love you when you lose your temper with your kids. If He loved you when you were His enemies, He is going to continue to love you when you insult or attack your siblings. I don't mean to have my arms folded. It's like an angry stance. This is good news, right? It's not an angry stance. This is like... Can you imagine that? Lose your temper? Mouth off? Harbor bitterness? Attack? Insult? Verbal haymakers? Selfish decisions that prioritize your own appetites over the needs of your own family? Is there anything that you could have done or maybe are doing right now that would be called, that would make you an enemy of God? Well, I have news for you. Then it came from Paul to the church at Rome. While you were enemies of God, he did this miraculous thing where he came after you and he restored the friendship that you had while you were enemies, and he will certainly now save you through his son. That's good news. As I fail, I start to feel guilty. And I just want to bring relief to you, my church family, that your success in your family doesn't impress God and your failure doesn't depress Him. His love for you is irrelevant and separate from your achievement and your success and you clicking on all cylinders every day. How do we know this is true? Well, you remember the tax collector, the despised one, and the despised one, Jesus tells the story, and he tells the story very effectively. The tax collector is the one who went home accepted by God and justified by God because of his approach, because of his heart attitude. He didn't list his achievements as a parent. He didn't say, there's a lot of crummy tax collectors, but I'm not one of those crummy tax collectors. I take my job very seriously and I don't make any mistakes. He didn't compare himself to his siblings and say, well, I may be bad and I have my own short circuits and my own shortfalls and I certainly miss the mark, but not as bad as my brother or my sister. Instead, what did he do? He simply threw himself at God's mercy. He failed into the arms of God. The Pharisees' long list of achievements and successes wasn't worth anything in God's eyes. And it's also true that when you and I are trying to bring our successful parenting and our successful family-ing before God and kind of wonder if maybe He's, you know, going to promote us a little bit. I don't know what that would mean. Another family? I don't know what that would mean. He's not impressed. He's not impressed, but He's also not depressed because we can't get it together and we can't make the strides that we are um, so desperately wanting. So, what does this mean? Your acceptance or rejection in God's eyes, it's never based on your success or failure at home. And you know what I'm hoping that that does? I'm hoping that this is a truth that your heart needs to hear. And I've, and I've discovered 
At the phase of life I'm in now, I've discovered that if I haven't already damaged my family in a way that seems beyond repair, it just seems like it's a matter of time. Just because of being around the general public, we people tend to damage things that we love and that we value. And it's also true that at this phase of life, I realize if I'm not the one doing the damage, that eventually, before too long, I'll be the one who gets damaged. And my hope and my prayer today is that this kind of truth, that your acceptance is never based on your success or failure at home, brings some kind of freedom. So how are you going to handle then a bitter brother or a bitter sister in your home or maybe in your extended family? How are you going to handle a defiant toddler who's looking you in the eyes and saying, I don't care what you say to me. I'm doing my own thing. I have no respect for your authority. How are you going to handle your, char- your child's first failing grade? Or their hypercritical condemning of their adult teacher. This is a tough one for us. The kids are little and they are condemning their adult teacher. And we're like, First of all, it's an adult. And second of all, condemning anybody is so painful to listen to. Or maybe even their friend's parents, right? Their constant whining about household responsibilities. And you want to get it right, and so much seems to hang on your reaction. So much seems to hang... Um, maybe you even plan what you're going to say, and then once it... This is like... It's like war, right? Everyone has a battle plan until the first shot is fired, and it's like running for the hills. This thing just blew up because our family's responses and reactions are so unpredictable. And all in all, what we end up saying is this all reflects so poorly on me. So, let's use some caution. Our approach could be, we're going to be more legalistic, right? The rules matter the most. We could, be, we could respond with license where we're like, God's rules don't, all, don't really matter all that much. And certainly we make it harder for ourselves if we are um, legalistic and we make it harder for ourselves if we're licensed parents. But there's an opportunity in our failure and our children need to see how the gospel is and how much it matters. And there's another area, really quick, there's another area, two types of contrasting home. There's grace families. And this is where I'm leading you to, hoping that something comes alive in you relative to the grace of the gospel. It's especially needed for Christian families. It's especially needed for Christian parents. So in one way, this grace family means we get to relax on the inside Your intervention won't be perfect. Your motivations will be mixed, sometimes driven rightly, sometimes driven wrongly. Your emotions will be in turmoil. But God is gracious. He's gracious to you and He's gracious to your child. Your perfection will crush you. If you're trying to be a perfect parent, if you're trying to be a perfect family, it will crush you, but God's grace can bring you rest. God's grace can bring you rest some relief. The weight of expecting 
Or, now, this is, um, this is interesting because there are some personality styles that are just bent this way. How many of you would, and I may have asked you this recently, but how many of you would say, in, this, in the kind of range of personality styles, I find myself more on the perfectionist side? Would you tell me who you are? Where's my perfectionist people? So, this, this here, this, this might be super clear to you. And sometimes it's not just the pursuit of perfection, it's the belief that perfection is attainable, that is crushing. Then, if you think perfection is attainable, then once you attain it, guess what you have to do? You have to maintain it. And you can't maintain perfection with any imperfection. You have to maintain the perfection. How do you have to do it? Perfectly, thank you. It'll crush you. And maybe it is crushing you. It'll steal your joy. Maybe it is. Maybe it has stolen your joy. Even if we're most prolific Christian parents on the earth, we only want to help see what God's really like. Even if we are the most prolific Christian parents on the planet, all we get to do is help children see what God is really like. All we get to do is to model who Jesus is. But they will only be born into God's family by an act of grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit and a merciful God. In other words, we can help, but we cannot save our kids by our parenting. And some of you have discovered that the hard way, the very, very hard way. Sometimes He saves them after letting them hit a dead end in life. I mean, in fact, can we do crowd participation still? Are you still with me? Can we do crowd participation? How many of you had really, really decent parents and you still had to hit the bottom, you had to do things your own way and get to the dead end before you turned it around? Can you show me who you are? Decent parents, boom, did things your own way. Well, that was a dumpster fire. Then you're like, well, let's come back to my faith. Sometimes God lets our kids fail trying to live their own way independently from Him. And one huge area of family guilt or certainly fear for Christian parents is our a child wanders away from Jesus, renounces their childhood faith, and in some cases accuses the church of being responsible for that, right? The church family, the people that you know and love and have grace for and appreciate. So, could we remember we're responsible for helping our kids meet and know Jesus, but we're not responsible to save them. We are to be a reflection of God, right? A, a bear witness that He is alive and well, and sometimes we help them, but we're not responsible for saving their souls. And God will use the helpful witness of parents, but... Certainly that good, good uh, witness doesn't save them. And being a flawed witness can't sabotage God's sovereign plan to rescue and save a little heart. It might delay it, it might complicate it, but God, can you picture God saying, oh, I want to save all of those kids, but their parents are so terrible. Can you picture that? We can't picture that, but sometimes we live that way. If God is at work pursuing your kids, you know what he's going to do? He's going to get them. 
It might be sooner or later. You might help or you might hinder. But God isn't like, ah, dang it, these parents are horrendous. They were so much better back in the 50s. God. Wait, he wouldn't say that. Well, I don't even know what he would say. Dang, yeah. Fooey. That's why my mom said that. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but picture that. God just like, ah, so what do I do now? He is at work, the divine, sovereign creator of the universe who hung stars perfectly in place, knows your kids. He knows them better than you know them, and they are loaned to you to make a helping influence, but they don't belong to us. They belong to the creator who gives them life and breath and loves them more dearly, infinitely more than you and I do. And he's at pursuit. He is pursuing them. And I want to be a help and not a hindrance. But I cannot carry the guilt, shame, and agony of failing God so bad that my kids are lost forever because of my own selfishness and my own incompetence. The sovereign God is at work. And one of the things that... um, is going to help. If we've hindered somehow in God reaching our kids, if we've hindered them, do you know what we do with our failures? The same things we tell our kids that God is in the business of doing. Nothing that we have done that has hindered our family so poorly is beyond His forgiveness. Because when you hinder a kid or a family member from coming to know Jesus, it's still a problem, right? It's still a sin. But God forgives you for that. The same way you're trying to communicate to your kids, He forgives them for their failures and missing the mark. And so imagine this. In our frailness and in our failures and in our flaws, we have the ability to bring the gospel to life in our families as we confess our sins to our kids and our siblings and our parents. And we confess those sins knowing that God can be trusted to forgive us of those sins. The sins of parenting and the sins of the family are not unforgivable. They are addressed by God in the same way that God addresses the sins of the kids. But if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. And I think that what happens in a family that's confessing and repentant is so healthy. I am talking to my kid or my sibling or my parents and saying, I am so flawed. I want to confess that to you. I have reconciled that and confessed that to God in heaven. And I pray that like he forgives me, you're able to forgive me one day. And by doing that, we pray that our kids see that God is in the forgiveness business. He's in the grace business. And that whenever you find yourself anxious about or even estranged because of your family or your parenting imperfections, you soothe yourself with God's grace. It's like a spiritual bath. Confess and repent and trust His promise for forgiveness. Confess and repent and trust His promise for forgiveness. That's how we enter the Christian life, right? That's how we begin it. That's certainly how we continue in it, and that's how we continue on as a family member in the Christian faith. God's grace soothes my fears, He soothes my failures, and sends me to confess them to whomever I need to confess my failures and flaws to. When we say, I'm grateful 
that God forgives me, and I pray that one day you can too. Lastly, never diminish God's grace. Real simple, real simple, right? Never diminish God's grace. Well, how might we be diminishing God's grace? Well, whenever we believe that we deserve God's forgiveness or when we feel like we're disqualified from God's, God's forgiveness, as if the forgiveness that God has granted to us through Jesus is lacking, inadequate, and now we have to qualify for it add a little bit, or somehow we're disqualified because what Jesus has done to forgive isn't enough. And we got to do our part. And by, so, by doing that, we diminish it. Functioning as if what Jesus accomplished on the cross is just a little too inadequate, right? So there's a new target, and I'm hoping that you can envision a grace-filled family. And I'm praying that the truth of the Pharisee and the tax collector comes to bear on our own hearts. When God, when you are joined to Jesus by faith, God begins to transform everything, starting with our hearts, and then eventually He brings transformation to our homes. And the gospel transforms the relationships in our homes. New grace for my imperfect family. New grace for my imperfect parenting. Freedom from guilt and shame. And I take off the crushing perfectionism, and I lay it down, and I say, I'm just going to receive this new rest that God has for me and for us in my home. And I'm going to be a part of helping God reveal Himself to my family so that their hearts adore Him in Jesus. Would you pray with me, church family? And right away, I'd love to know, while your heads are bowed, who needs God's intervention in your family? Maybe it's your own failure. Maybe it's the failure of someone else. Your hand. Would you slip your hand up? Who am I praying for? Who is it? We need you need God's intervention in your family. Maybe, uh, um, maybe a divine dose of grace. Where are you? Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. The good news is that this is what God does. Through humble repentance. We see it in the tax collector, humble repentance. And then he's justified. Start with your approach before God and it sounds like God I recognize that I fall short of meeting your standard and that I'm separated from you by my sin I confess that I repent of that I repent in trusting myself in my own ways my own decisions my own choices living for my own glory and I'm turning from that and I'm resting my trust in the work of Jesus to make me right with you. And today, if that's the first time you've ever thought about it, or you start praying something like that, you can be saved today through that humble repentance. And then perhaps it's beyond that. Perhaps it's a matter of you need healing in your home. And that healing isn't going to come from proving that you're right or helping convince your kids that you're right. It's going to come through confession and repentance and trusting God's promise for forgiveness. God, we're throwing ourselves collectively at your mercy. Just like the despised tax collector, we're throwing ourselves at your mercy. We're failing into your arms together. Imperfect parents, imperfect grandparents, imperfect children and siblings, aunts, uncles, and nephews, grandparents. Father, we pray today that you do something deep and powerful and 
mighty in our hearts. We're open to it. We look forward to it. We receive it when it's time. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? We're going to sing of this gospel truths, the amazing, amazing grace that God offers.